Zach. Hey, Steven. So when you want to memorize something, Zach, what do you do? I mean, not like learn it, memorize it, but like actually memorize verbatim a piece of information. Um, one of the things that I tend to do is use mnemonics, uh, different, like the stuff that sticks in my head the best is songs. I remember in third grade, everything that we learned is in songs. And the reason that I remember it is because I remember all of the songs still. Like when I do my multiple of threes, even though I can get the multiple of threes, in my head, it's still 3, 6, 9, 12, 5, uh, yeah, 12, 15, 18, 21, 24, 27, 30, then 33. Just Wow, I never learned uh, that song. All songs. <laughs> it's, there, there were, it was multiples of all of them. So like four was square dancing. <laughs> That's, I, I don't remember any of the other ones, but. <laughs> yeah, we didn't do that. We were just told, uh, use timetable to memorize the timetable and hope you don't fail the class. Although it's third grade, so you don't fail. You just don't get the ice cream at the end of the year. Timetables, I think, for us were fourth or fifth grade. Or adding or whatever it was. I don't remember. It was, you got a piece of paper with 100 questions on it. And then if you got, you had 60 seconds. If you got to 10, then you would get a bowl of ice cream. If you got 20, then you would get a bowl of ice cream with a cherry or something. And then it would keep working up by the end of the year. I, th I think we had the same scheme, but that was definitely not third grade. Hmm. Uh, I'm fairly... Well, I guess I don't remember what grade it was. I remember it being in primary school, so between first and third grade, that happened to us. See, I remember where my desk was and in which room when I had to do all my times tables. <laughs> so I can place myself on at least one hallway doing fourth and fifth grade hmm. things. That's weird, because we went to the same district, but different primary schools. You'd think they'd mm -hmm. be a bit more uh, similar in the curriculum. Yeah. So, anyways, memorizing things I generally do by song or by mnemonic, and otherwise I don't have a lot of just rote memorization stuff that I'm needing to do now, so I don't haven't really developed my abilities to. All right. Yeah, I don't have a really good way either. My only... Do you have any tips or tricks? I... The only the way I do it now is not the way that I tried to do it before. Hold on, that didn't make any sense. Uh, what I do now is basically just say it to myself, say the thing that I need to memorize to, in my head, say it over and over and over again, and then take a five-minute break of shuffling cards or something else to distract myself, and then try to say whatever it was again. And if I can't get it, say it over and over and over again, do something else. And then say it again. So what are the kinds of things that you're trying to memorize in this? Uh, well, the thing I was thinking about when I was putting it on the agenda was the was my script for drama. Okay. Yeah, in that case, for me, it's just the same thing. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. Yeah. And, that, and that's really the only way I can do it because I have some other memory tricks, but they take a long time to work. And with drama, it needs to be... You need to say your line right after the guy before you, unless the script says something else. So, uh, mm -hmm. there's not like I can... Uh, the memory champion of the world, he did a few YouTube videos, and how he memorizes things is he imagines his mind as a physical space, and then places the memories mm -hmm. in a spot. And because your physical memory yeah. is much better than your... Uh, your memory of physical space, that is, is much better than uh, memory for anything else. So if he pictures a desk, say, and he places a memory of, say, I'm not really sure what the competitions for memories are. I imagine it's something like uh, shuffled card decks, and you have to memorize as many as you can. He places mm -hmm. one order in one spot, another in another spot, and that kind of thing. But you can't really do that in drama because that takes time to to recall that information. Ideally, in drama, I suppose, once you're in character, then the next line is just the thing that your character would say. It doesn't take any memorization at all. I don't really have any handy tricks other than just memorizing, doing it over and over. <laughs> so, Stephen, you and I were just in some drama productions at our schools. 
and I sort of know what yours is, but do you want to get me give me a decent rundown? Uh, sure. So our play was called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, which is a play that is a combination of other plays. So the subtitle would be 30 Plays in 60 Minutes. And mm-hmm. so we all got, everyone in Drama Club got a few plays with different characters in each play. And there's no overarching story. It's just 30 plays in 60 minutes. Some are funny, some are sad, some are just kind of make you think. And it was really fun to do. Um, I was unable to attend most of the practices, though, because of track, track and field. So I didn't get yeah. as many plays as some of the other guys, but my plays were really fun, and it was, yeah. Uh, I'd say it was probably more fun to watch than it was to perform, because there's so much downtime. Mm-hmm. You're sitting backstage and not really being allowed to watch everyone else's play because you you shouldn't peek through the curtain. That's just not good. Uh, and a lot of them, it and the audience actually got to pick the order of the plays, which was cool. And with that, we the play was pretty different every night because there's so much of scripted improv. Like in, it was like an insert insert thing here kind of stuff in the script so it was a uh, that was a lot of mm-hmm. fun to do one of the plays uh that i was in called hair director uh there was a director and two actors on stage and the director just keeps bossing my character around making him do ridiculous things that change every night and it was a lot of fun yeah um real quick i actually have a couple questions about your production i have some inside intel uh, i've got the list of plays right here and i was going to ask you about three of them just because they have interesting titles and i want to get a general sense of what what it was like so can you are would you be able to tell me anything about tableau for three yes uh shoot tableau for three uh i do remember this and i just cannot remember uh one second one second Sounds like you need to work on some of those memorization tips. Yes, well, that that wasn't one of my plays, so I, yeah. <laughs> um, shoot. I cannot tell you about that one. We'll skip that. <laughs> okay. I, um, what about this play does not exist? Okay. Well, this play does not exist was play number 22. And basically what happened was... The first time someone called out number 22, the audience member, because they got to pick the order, we would go, eh, no, nope, mm-hmm. not that one, pick a different one. And they would have to pick a different one. <laughs> and then the second time they did it, though, we would say, oh, I don't know. And But Dylan, our director, would say, all right, guys, we got to do it. And they, they picked it. So we're like, but are you sure? And we're like, okay, well, fine. So uh, one of the cast members would go out and say, Ladies and gentlemen, this play does not exist. Uh, there's never been a play of 22 and stuff like that. And then halfway through their monologue, they would go, they would pause, and they would say, Play 22 does exist! It's not, it's actually a really good play! And like, uh, she would, more cast members would start to run at her and start dragging her off stage (laughs) as if they didn't want her to spoil a secret of Play 22. And then backstage, (laughs) so Dylan would go up. The director would go up and start saying how this play actually doesn't exist. Don't worry about her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And <laughs> you would hear in the backstage uh, a door slamming and like a uh, shaking of a door like as if it were locked. <laughs> and yeah, just banging and like, and then someone else would come out and say, sorry for the disturbance, blah, blah, blah. And uh yeah, it was actually really funny to fun to perform. Play 22 was an inside job. Um, and then the pitter-patter of tiny feet. Okay, so this one was a monologue by the director. And the the character whose wife is having morning sickness. And mm-hmm. he goes through stages of first panicking because he's having a child. And then relief because he's having a child. And then joy because he's having a child and then at the end of the play uh they get a pregnancy test and turns out she was just sick and it was kind of sad 
in a humorous way, so it wasn't as sad as it could have been. The other plays I was in were called, uh, shoot, it was the long one. <laughs> the story of... <laughs> no, the other long one. The, oh yeah, every time a bell rings. Every time a bell yep. rings? Every time a bell rings, an angel gets to salivate, which the title doesn't make much sense unless you really, really think about it, and we didn't really understand the meaning of the title until uh, during the performance, really, when we were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, uh, there was a, a psychologist, I think, who rang a bell, and every time he gave his dogs food. You familiar with that experiment? Avlov. Avlov. Yeah. All right. That's the. Yeah, and so what? What he would do is he would ring a bell and give his dogs a piece of meat or whatever, and eventually, every time he rang the bell, his dogs would start to salivate because they knew they were getting food. So, what the script is, is it's a monologue of me saying, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the guy performed before me. And then we would, I would make a clapping motion, and the audience would start to clap. And then I would say, Ladies and gentlemen, the other person mm-hmm. who pre- performed before me, more clapping. And then I would go, Ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. hold out my right arm, and say, My right arm! And then they would start to clap. <laughs> Because every time a bell rings, the dog salivated. Yeah. And it would go through a bunch of stuff like that. Um, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's if you were going to see it somewhere else. But yeah, it was a lot of fun to do because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the, li- <clears throat> a lot of the... A lot of the lines in this play were kind of uh, adult, explicit, I guess. So we had to make it more family-friendly because it is a school drama production. Yeah. Uh, I understand that yours... So was there, like, one... Go ahead. Oh, oh, yeah, never mind. Never mind. I was just going to ask if there was an overarching theme between all the plays. No, there's not. Even if there wasn't a story, was there a theme, or was it just throw some plays together? Okay. Um... So you had the best segue ever that I stepped on top of. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Zach, from what I understand about your play, it is not so family-friendly. No, not at all. Uh, So I was in the inaugural performance of the Honors Club, Honors Drama Club here at UWM. And we put on Edward Albee's The Goat, which is a good play. It won a Tony for its writing in the 2000s, early 2000s. Um, But it's definitely not something that Laconia Drama would put on for kids to come to. It's it follows this guy throughout all of oh boy act one i just forgot the word for an act here we go (laughs) it's that kind of day it follows this guy martin throughout all of act one and you just kind of get to know him as a husband and as a he's a great architect and as a friend and then at the very end of act one it comes to light that he's screwing a goat oh and the next yeah yeah oh and the next few scenes are just entirely the aftermath of that and everything that happens. And it's really wonderfully written, and it's very emotional um, and intended to get you to think. Um, they kind of, the goal, I think, is to desensitize you and set the goat. Like, him screwing a goat, definitely off limits. That's wrong. But then his son is gay, and so at the time it was a little more subversive to be like, but is being gay wrong? Um, and then... He's uh, the kind of playing with the lines between familial love and romantic love. Hmm. And then it ends in this giant explosion of emotion. And it was really fun to perform, but also extremely hectic. And we're all honors students who are taking too many credits already. And throwing on another club is just like right. yeah. taking another one credit course. Yeah, I can see that being not very much fun. Well, it it does sound like a lot of fun because drama is fun, but it can I can see it being stressful. Yes, I I had forgotten how much I missed theater, hmm. and it's really gratifying, at least for me, to be involved in it like that. Just so hectic. <laughs> so because of the goat, which was one week ago, my whole system of clearing to neutral at the end of the night and clearing out my inbox and scheduling out my day has become 
a pretty big mess. The first time that I actually got a chance to do that clear to neutral ritual in the last two weeks, because we had tech week before, was yesterday. But before it all got thrown out of whack, I started using Kin Calendar, which is an app to help schedule your day, I guess, is what you would call it. So Kin Calendar integrates with a lot of different calendar applications, um, Google Calendar and Facebook events and Eventbrite um, and a lot of other things like that. But the two integrations that I use it for are Google Calendar and then Todoist, which is where I keep all of my to-do items. Let's click out of that. And so for me, I am able to use it to drag all of my Todoist items that before were just ambiguous broad things that I had to get done sometime in the day and put them into a time slot so that they're more likely to get done and I can visualize what I can actually get done in the day. Okay. Uh, there are a couple minor annoyances. It doesn't really work. You can't drag something to be repeating. Within Kin Calendar, that has to be within Todoist. And uh, the Todoist items are forced to be one-hour blocks. You can't change the length of time. Oh. But overall, it's really been... Yeah, it's not it's not super great, but a lot of the things that I do are either one hour or a half hour, and I just need to be aware. Like, when one thing starts, then ideally the last thing has just ended. Right. So yeah. if I overwrite a one-hour block halfway through, then it's just a half-hour task. All right. I can see that. It reminds me of a app I had a, a few years ago. It was called Timeful, and it was since shut. It was bought by Google, and then it Google shut it down for some reason. But basically, what it did was you would tell it not through Todoist or anything, but you would tell it what you needed to do, and then it would schedule out your day based on that. And how you would tell it that mm -hmm. you have these projects open, and you tell it when they were due and how much work it was going to be to finish it. And then it would, yeah. you would just look at your calendar and it would schedule time slots for you to work on that project. Another thing I liked was you could tell it that you didn't want to do that project right now and it would find something else for you to do. So yeah, mm -hmm. I really liked it, but then it got shut down and I'm sad. So some of those components actually did get thrown into Google Calendar over the years. On mobile now with Google Calendar, you can add in habits which was this big feature that they premiered, but it must have just been ripped from Tidal. Tidal? Was that the name of the app? Timeful. Um, and that worked like you're saying, where you would say, hey, Google, three times a week, I want to remember to go on a bike ride. And usually I'm more open in the afternoons, and then it would just find days in the afternoons that you didn't have something, another calendar item overlapping oh, yeah. it, and schedule in a bike chunk. But part of the problem with that, uh, I tried it for a while, is that it can only check against one of your calendars. Oh. So even though you can split it up, like I have a work calendar and a school calendar and like a play practice calendar and then my main calendar, which is just the meetings and stuff that I go to. Right, right. It would only check against my meetings and schedule stuff while I had work. But what you're talking about, the automatic scheduling of things, sounds a lot like a project I've heard of called Trevor AI. Have you heard about this? So I think it's it's supposed to be the same thing, um, but it integrates better with more things. Like it'll integrate with Todoist. I don't know about OmniFocus. You might just be in trouble right there. Yeah, but I guess not. OmniFocus is pretty you schedule out. Mm -hmm. You schedule out blocks of time, and it'll tell you what stuff's going on in your morning, what stuff's going on at night, what stuff you're doing during your work time. Um, and then you can talk to it natural language and say, hey, I have a, I have homework that I need to get done for this class. And it'll say, okay, how long do you think that'll take? And you say, probably two hours. And then it'll say, when do you want to do that? Here's a couple available times. And you can say, oh, well, tomorrow after work or Wednesday morning or whenever. All right, yeah, I'll look into that. Yeah, it's currently in early access. I'm eager to try it once it's more available, but that sounds like it might start to solve that problem. But being on OmniFocus, you might have some challenges with getting it all to work together nice. Um, so I've been using Kin Calendar. It looks like you also have a priority system now? Yeah, yeah. I uh, changed mine up a little bit. I used to do... Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the day, I would 
look through what my projects and pick what I'm going to do. Uh, and that's worked for me for a while, except it had the problem of that you actually had to sit down for a little while and figure out what you're going to do today. Uh, so I came up with a different system, yep. which is you set as a priority a long list of things, and when you're when it comes time to work on that, when it comes time to work on stuff, you just pick one off the list. So your priority system is just a list of things that you should be doing right now or could be doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way, you only have to set the you only have to set what's important once, and then as you add things, you can add them to the priority. And once you get done with the priority, you can probably go back through and figure out what else is what's next on your list. You know. So. Forgive me, but this sounds a lot like what you were explaining before, that you have just kind of your normal inbox and then a priority inbox? Um, yes, except that instead of, at, except with the old system, you would pick, or I would pick, this list of things that I could reasonably do in a day. Mm-hmm. And with this system, I pick things that I could do at all, in over any amount of time, without any resetting of the list. It just continues from day to day okay so the the difference is now you set set up your priority inbox as you add the task as opposed to every morning uh basically yeah okay has that been working well for you so far uh i think so uh the problem running into is that i become desensitized to tasks that have been in the list for a long time yeah so if a task sits in the priority inbox for a certain amount of time, then I kind of just stop seeing it and work on something else every time because mm-hmm. I continue to not want to do it. So that's a, yeah. it's a work in progress. So there needs to be a, a third priority tier that's priority and been in the inbox for more than two weeks. Yeah, and I think that is an OmniFocus Pro kind of thing. When I have OmniFocus regular, mm-hmm. without the smart gotcha. uh, perspectives. So if I did that, I would have to do it uh, manually, which would work, but oh yeah, that's probably wouldn't work as well as a computer doing it for me. So I do an AV job here at the university, and a couple of weeks ago I was running an event for the swing dancing club here and after seeing the tom scott and matt gray video get some gosh darn uh, which will be available effectively they're just saying you need to get yourself some earplugs um so i just grabbed some of the little 3m foam cheap 30 cent earplugs that we have in the uh av shop and brought them with me and at first because the band was directly to my left. I just put it in my left ear. And then as the night went on, I started to realize my right ear was ringing more. So I eventually put the earplugs in both ears. And one of the problems with these foam earplugs is that they cut out different frequencies of audio at different levels. So it might cut out the higher pitches more than it'll cut out the lower pitches or vice versa. And they make make it harder to mix your audio when your job is mixing that audio to sound good right that makes sense so i got some flat response earplugs online for like twenty dollars and i've been using those more and they do work those just drop everything at one level as opposed to varied levels and they've been helping one of my friends was just telling me he got a job as a dj and he spent six hours standing directly next to a subwoofer and my first response was oh my god get some earplugs um so This is just my public service announcement. Halfway through the show, get some earplugs (laughs) if you're doing anything that involves loud noises. Even if you go to concerts a lot, probably a good idea to get some earplugs. Additionally, even if you're not always around loud noises, having the earplugs has been nice for me because a lot of times I'll want to just sit in my room and work on something, but my roommate will be playing the office on the other side of this wall that I work against. Or there are elevator noises that constantly run through this, which Steven knows all too well. And if music would be too distracting, it does work to put in the like highest level 
sound cancellation uh, filter of these earplugs and just pop them in. And then it's like I'm out in the middle of nowhere hearing nothing, even though I'm still in the middle of a dorm room. Wow. All right. Good tip. Uh, Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned uh, the world memory champion using his Mm -hmm. uh, memorizing things by imagining his mind as a physical space. So I'm wondering, Zach, yeah. if you have ever imagined your mind as a physical space, what did it look like? I'm not talking about, like, for memory or anything. I'm just, if you have imagined the way that your head stores information, what does that look like? Okay. Um. Yeah, so I was definitely thinking something like moonwalking like Einstein, where it's specifically for memory, but you're just talking generally imagining the inner workings of a brain as something that you can comprehend um as far as memory goes like if i think about remembering things it's just a really long black and white tiled hallway with evenly spaced doors on the left and right going on stretching on to infinity um i don't even know if the doors are labeled i don't think so (laughs) Uh, but otherwise i don't spend a large amount of time imagining what my brain looks like so Uh. What does yours look like? I don't spend that much time thinking about it either, but uh, as far as it, what it feels like, I guess, what it feels like when I'm trying to remember things, it's like a, mm-hmm. um, it's a white room, but the room is infinitely big. It's just white everywhere, mm-hmm. but it has a table right in the center that I can visualize with basically an Apple II sitting on it with a black screen and green <laughs> text because that is the coolest. And yeah. when I want to access information, it feels like using the terminal to just call up some information. Uh, what if you need to remember terminal commands, though? <laughs> Do it by heart. All right. Uh, <laughs> when I, but when I start accessing the information, it just gets moved to the wall of the room, or because it's infinite, it kind of just floats around. A, mm-hmm. a um, what do you call that? A... Uh, I can't just put information on the wall. It has to be something that represents the information. A pointer? Yeah, but uh, remember a few... Remember last year we were talking about what a dog is in our head? Abstraction. Yeah, abstraction. Yeah. So it's basically just an abstraction of the information. It just kind of floats around in my head. And Mm -hmm. when I start thinking about multiple things, then they all just kind of float around. And that's kind of how ideas are made when two abstractions get mushed together. Also how puns are made. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. When I stop thinking about it, it just kind of gets put into a folder, not necessarily in the right order, and just gets moved off of the desktop, I guess. That that has helped me to refine mine a little bit, I guess, then. It's a little more like a bunch of nodes just a bunch of those little amorphous nodes that then just have a connections that go across, I guess, effectively the way that neurons actually work. <laughs> so kind of cheating my yeah, way out sense. of it. But, um, you know, dog will go to horse, apparently. That's the first thing that comes up when I think of dog. Not sure why. They both have four legs and run. <laughs> well, whatever works. Um, uh, yeah, it was just a... So, so they all just kind of link across in a big web. All right. It was just something I was thinking about when I read up, when I was thinking about uh, the memory guy. Uh, on a different sort of philosophy note, uh, if someone were to write a biography of you, Zach, what would be the opening line? Mm-hmm. I think it's a little presumptive at eighteen to assume that someone's writing a biography about well, me, e- and I feel like the even if they don't, yeah, but I I did. understand. Okay, I. I feel like the opening line would probably have something to do with what I ended up doing further on down the line. But um, you wrote this question in the agenda, and I actually started going through and just getting a whole bunch of Kindle demo versions of like the Elon Musk and Einstein biography. And it looks like the main two things, um, once you get past like a cast of characters who are going to appear in this biography, and then also the preamble you get to either a quote from the person or from the person's like journals or letters or whatever Mm -hmm. or how they came into the world yeah that makes sense um so for example uh 
Elon Musk's biography, the one that I looked at, starts with, do you think I'm insane? In quotes. Einstein starts with quotes. Jobs is how Steve Jobs came to be adopted by Paul Jobs. Right. Um, Jim Jones of the Jonestown Massacre was just one of them that popped up when I looked up biography. Was actually very different. I think it was how um, the like preamble had a very interesting one, but then the chapter one was just all of these lies, I believe, his mother. it's I, I didn't read anything past the first lines of all these, so these are all <laughs> very vague. Um, but it seems like all of these different things that his mother believed, and then it says none of that was true, beginning with her name. Oh, wow. Yeah. So so they're they're strong, and so I think what I would want it to be would be something from a journal or a letter or an email or whatever, archival data they can find. Okay. relating to what i've done yeah that makes sense i i took it a little bit of a different direction i didn't look at any other biographies um mm -hmm. i just thought about if i were to do something what would it probably be and i came up with yeah. um this line uh and uh, again this is obviously it's hopeful not like hopeful uh i don't know it's it it's it's not accurate like it's not a retelling of past events. Yeah, or maybe not even future events. Probably not even future events, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, a man can yeah. dream. Uh, Stephen Barry did the most to advance our society than any other person you have never heard of. Nice. That's a, that's a fun one. Yeah. and uh, So you're going to join the CIA and... <laughs> well, no, but like if I wrote a groundbreaking academic paper, no one reads academic papers and I probably wouldn't get a ton of credit for mm -hmm. the incredible advancements that our society made after that paper was published. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I came up with. Okay, so you took it more in a direction of, in the future, what will you have... Yeah, I, uh, I can't phrase it quite right, but we did uh, an exercise like this at Boy Scout Camp um, one time, where it was just like, in 40 years, when they write a newspaper article about you, what will it say? So, Stephen, before we get into this, I want to ask, do you have any motivational posters or phrases or pillows or whatever that you have <laughs> that you own? Uh, I used to have a piece of paper that I printed off with a question on it that was hanging over my desk. Ooh. I used to have the question, um, are you asking the right question above my desk? Hmm. Because of... There was... Uh, I listened to the Freakonomics audiobook, and the moral mm -hmm. of the story in basically every case that I could that I read about was people asking the wrong questions when they're trying to solve a problem. So if if yeah. I was ever stuck on something, I would look at the poster and ask myself the same question: Are you asking the right question and working on the wrong problem? Hmm. All right, I I like that. Yeah. So it sounds like for that, um, so one of the things I've been struggling with, uh, with this room now that I can lay out my room exactly how I want, um, and then I'm going to be moving rooms and need to relay out my room, um, is where to put my motivational posters. <laughs> um, I have one right now, it's right on top of my bed. It's a Hank Green quote, our actions build our world. And it's, it's good on the, the lazy mornings when I wake up and I'm like, oh man, I don't want to do anything today. And then I can kind of look at that and, oh wait, they're like, it's, it's a different phrasing of that Steve Jobs, everything you see around you was made by someone no smarter than you or oh, me. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah Same like general idea. I like that. That the things that we do, I think it was on, on the, on the subject of tolerance and being more open is that everything that you do to contribute to your local area manages to have a wider effect and so everything that you do builds the world all right and then yeah. the only other one i have right now is uh like torn off notebook sheet effectively that just says is your done on the front of my door because i have a really bad habit of just getting up when i don't want to work on a problem with coding or am bored or whatever i will get up and walk right out that door and go sit in the common area and talk with people for hours on end. So now I've got that thing, and I was thinking about getting it printed up in a nice format. <laughs> but the thing is, a lot of times I don't look 
where it is right now. So it doesn't help except for when I'm sitting in my desk thinking about going to the door. Oh. <laughs> when I'm actually walking through the door, I'm not looking at the door. Right, yeah. So what's the most effective place to put a motivational poster? Well, I would say that it's not the place that you look the most, because then you get desensitized to it. You'll just look somewhere else. Yeah. Oh, okay. I would say that it's somewhere that you look when you need that motivation. Hmm. So, uh, what do you think? Um, what you were saying about putting it up above your desk sounds pretty good. I know in Cirrus, I had, um, last year, or two years ago, probably two years ago now, there was a meme going around of this kid who got high on something and used a DIY t t tattoo kit to tattoo a really poorly done Charmander on his side somewhere. Yeah, I remember that. And some a lot of people did different did different remixes of that and one person's was that Charmander tattoo on just some rolling hills with rainbow comic sans behind it that said Belvin yourself. <laughs> I remember you putting so that So at up. one point in Sirius, I printed that out and had it, yeah, had it on the right side. So it was nice for me because I could look at it. And also when other people walked up, it was a fun thing to see, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little desk ornament. Then but... I also made the feel well. Oh, yes. I remember this. Which was mostly a pun. Um, our advisor was having a bad day. And I asked her how she was. And she was like, oh, you know, Zach, I'm not feeling too well. Or I'm not feeling well. She didn't say two. It was it was definitely just, I'm not feeling well. So I go back to my desk and sit down, and five minutes later, I get up, walk to the printer, and pull out this picture of a well. It's just the first picture that pops up when you Google well that I had printed out, and just slide it under her hand and say, there, now you can feel well. <laughs> um, so we, we labeled it as such as the feel well, and so now at least... While I was there, there was a feel well on the wall that whenever you weren't feeling well, you could go up to it and you could feel oh. well. I'm pretty sure it's still there. I don't think anyone's used it since you left, though. Awesome. Unfortunately. Dang. Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll try and figure out where I stare at when I'm feeling demoralized and see what I can put there. I learned about something... Uh, a few weeks ago called isometric exercise and what isometric exercise is is exercise that is static with that you don't move while doing it which sounds awesome because hmm. <laughs> you can get fit without moving yeah uh which i mean i am down for that yeah it, it technically is not moving but it is moving in the same way that a plank is not moving hmm so uh a few examples are uh, standing in a doorframe and pushing up on the doorframe using all of, all of the, the muscles that are available to do that. Yeah. And just pushing as hard as you can. Um, and that style is called an overcoming isometric exercise, which basically just means that the muscles are working against an immovable object. And mm -hmm. then a yielding isometric exercise is one that you are trying not to yield against a resistant force. So, uh, like a plank is a yielding one because you're trying to, you're trying not to yield against gravity. Yeah. So yeah, I, obviously these ex exercises have existed for a long time, but, uh, I didn't know they had a name until now. And so they're really good for people who can't move as much. Mm. Uh, if you have like a bum knee or something, you can still probably do a plank. Yeah. Even if you can't like run and stuff or swim or whatever you would usually do to exercise. It also mm -hmm. doesn't take a lot of time to do. So if you are just, uh, if you're bored one day and you got 10 minutes, you can do a bunch of isometric exercises without probably getting too sweaty and you can just move on to the next thing in 10 minutes. So last episode, Stephen, you were talking about getting your forensics piece that you'd written to perform published um so that other people could do it other groups could do it and i was just wondering what the sitch on that is uh yeah so it turns out it's not that easy to get things published especially when you're just a student and don't have a name really uh 
Everybody's got a name. Well, yeah, but not Is one that, that people recognize. Actually, I'm not sure. I think you're. Everyone's supposed to have a name. I'm not sure if everyone actually does. Does everyone have a name? Okay, there's one. Oh, okay. We can. I'm. I'm not. I'm not diving down that rat hole. Um. <laughs> carry on. Sorry. All right. <laughs> So one of the things I've been debating is when I actually get someone who will publish my forensics piece, uh, should I use the pseudonym that I used when I was performing it, or should I use my real name? Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, if I use my pseudonym, I don't get any credit other than the people I, other than people who already know it's me. Uh, Yeah. However, uh, if I'm going to continue writing forensics pieces if i do it in college or something uh maybe it's a maybe patsy kono is a name that i want as well i don't know i to be honest i can't really think of a good reason to use my pseudonym so the your hesitation it sounds like is if you were to do forensics again just hit my lamp okay your hesitation it sounds like is if you were to do forensics again that any piece that you wrote would still have your name tied to it. And I'm asking if there's any harm in writing everything under your name. And then when you're doing the introduction and telling them what piece this is, just telling them that it's by the pseudonym. Uh, yeah. So that's, that is my worry that, um, in the future, if I write something under Patsy Kono and the judge has already heard something by Patsy Kono and, and already heard that, uh, heard the piece, as by Stephen Barry because she or he looked at it before, had has seen it on one of those published websites. Oh yeah. I mean, the chances of that are actually okay. pretty slim, but it is possible to get a judge yeah. more than once. Hmm. Well do they know that you're Stephen Barry? Uh when you go up and present? It depends on the competition. At stage they do. They have your names. Oh, okay. I'm not sure what it's like in college, but in high school only the one competition does know. Hmm. But, and there's the other argument, which is, it would be nice to have credit for the things I wrote, you know? Yeah. I think, my opinion, I'm still erring on, I'm still leaning towards putting it under your own name. Yeah. That's what I've been leaning towards as well. All right. Well, I agree. Okay. Uh, if you have your own opinion on the subject, uh, put it in the comments. I will definitely read it. Or tweet oh, yeah, at us. tweet at us, too. Uh, our Twitter handles are in the show notes, and there we'll same at the end of the show. Many ways. Yeah. So there was a large group ensemble competition recently, which is mm-hmm. essentially the same thing as solo ensemble, but for giant groups of people. And when I say giant, it was around 50 players, in, and we're playing in a concert band format. And yeah. So yeah, I participated, I played... So it's just a lot of people in a music competition? Yes. Yeah, that's what it is. And Battle of the Concert Bands? Uh, <laughs> it's not really a competition, I would say, but it is a competition against uh, the... <laughs> I guess against the composer, maybe? You, you play the music, you play difficult music, and a judge, or I think three judges, actually, judge you on that performance. Gotcha. So yeah, our group played uh, a song called Shenandoah and a song called Dedicatory Overture. <laughs> and I played French horn for both of those. Uh, we scored we score, scored uh, first place for all for both of the songs, which we were pretty happy about because we probably didn't deserve that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, one of the judges came up to me afterwards, actually, and asked me, how long I'd been playing French horn, and I said, like, half a semester, because, <laughs> and he's like, I figured it was a short amount of time, because you play well, but you hold the trump, you hold the horn wrong, I'm like, whoa, how, how, how oh. do I hold the horn wrong, and he's like, and he shows me I needed to put my hand, my right hand, farther into the bell, because uh, it muffles the sound mm-hmm. more, because the French horn apparently sticks out a lot. In a con- in a concert band setting, yeah. So you want actually want it to be more muffled unless you're marching or something. Hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I didn't know that. I actually just ran a 
event that had a horn ensemble playing. And that was one of the times that the earplugs came in a lot of handy because really, that's not a phrase. That's not a phrase at all. Um, (laughs) That was the horn ensemble was the time that the earplugs really came in handy quite a lot there. That's that's a valid grammatically correct phrase. Um, But yeah, French horns can get really loud. Oh, yeah, really loud. Um, We played a piece a few years ago. I think I'm not sure if you I think you had quit band by that time, but it was Godzilla. We played the score from mm-hmm. Godzilla, and uh, we used the French horn to make the Godzilla noises, which so it actually sounded really good. The half elephant, half lizard sounds. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> I, I feel like Godzilla was definitely the battle or the battle between the band and the composer. Yeah, yeah, I, it, yeah. It was a, a difficult piece, but it was I, really fun to play. You were explaining how it was, if 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 it was a battle between the band and anything, it was between the band and the composer, and then you're getting judged on how well you can do what the composer wants you to do, and it made me think of um, how like soda companies started the anti-littering campaign. Oh, okay. Um, so when I don't remember exactly when, but there's an ad that was produced with like a Native American rowing a canoe through a lake that was just filled with trash and then he shed a single tear and then they were like don't litter and so the whole anti-littering movement was actually started by soda companies because they used to use reusable resealable containers oh and then it was cheaper to move to single-use disposable containers huh but they didn't want it to be their fault that people started just disposing of these containers in less responsible ways so even though it was their fault that there were now more disposable containers, they positioned it as it's America's fault for littering with these containers. Um, so that, that's what you, you were saying, that, oh, well, it's clearly the band's fault that they can't play 332nd notes in a row. Huh, that's really interesting. I don't rem- I think it was a Vox video. I feel like I should probably make sure that Vox, like, I trust Vox implicitly, and I'm not sure that I always should. <laughs> All right. Um, so anyway, that's that's what I thought of the band having to rise to meet the standard of the great composer who can do no wrong. Yeah, that, yeah, you're right. Uh, there was <laughs> we watched we watched another band play, and they were really good. Except their percussion section was entirely uh, just way too loud. Aren't they all? Yeah, but. In one spot specifically that we noticed, and the judge also noticed, because he went up and asked them to play the spot because it drowned out the rest of the band. And they were like, but dude, it has forte fortissimo here. It's three Fs. This is the loudest we can play. It says to play the loudest you can play. And he's like, yes, but everyone else is also trying to play forte fortissimo. And you are louder than them. And it was, he, then he's... Okay, but why be in percussion if you can't just hit the drums really hard sometime? Save it for rehearsal. Uh, but, no, he he went on to say uh, he's been trying to get publishing companies to stop letting composers put triple F in, fort in percussion at any time. Because giving <laughs> percussion free reign to hit it as hard as they can is never a good idea. Yeah. As, as a ex-percussionist... Yeah. <laughs> As a person who's sat right in front of the percussion se- section for most of his band career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, my school had a pre, uh, pre-release pre showing, or maybe like the night of showing, of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And I couldn't go because I had work. Ooh, and I'm a little rough. upset about that. Yeah, so... It's it's on the list, the very long list of things that I need to watch, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. Uh yeah, I just I watched it Thursday night because it came out a day early in Ripon, Ripon, Wisconsin, because Ripon has um was the first Marcus Theater, so they get pre releases and stuff like that. So I watched it um, mm-hmm. and it was it was a solid movie, you know? 
Um, if you like comic book movies, you'll probably like this. Um, it cleared up a few things that weren't entirely clear in the first movie, and it was really funny. Um, there were some cheap laughs, but that's kind of the style of the movie, so it was it was good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, so I liked it, and you should watch it, Zach. All right, I'll. It, it's it's a notch higher on the list now. Okay. <laughs> Still a really long list. Yep. What else is on your list? Um. Oh boy, I have. It's actually the list is mostly just the podcast that I listen to. I'm opening my podcast to see. My list is mostly the podcasts that I haven't been able to finish yet because it's a spoiler for something. So right now, Westworld, Black Mirror, Get Out, and whatever the most recent Hello Internet was a spoiler cast for, which was uh, Westworld again. So definitely Westworld and then all of those other ones. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I have my list pulled up in front of me, and I'm realizing that it has... uh... 122 movies. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so that might take a while. Uh, a lot of them haven't come out yet, but a lot of them are just uh, older movies that I wanted to watch at some point. Mm-hmm. There are probably a lot of these that I don't need to actually watch, but would, you know, as a... Yeah. I wouldn't call myself a movie buff, but I do like movies a lot. Mm-hmm. So it was like Citizen Kane on there and that kind of thing? Yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, here, I'll, I'll look through it and... Uh, uh, Citizen Four, which was the Edward Snowden documentary. Uh, I never got yeah. a chance to watch Deep Water Horizon, so that's on there. Um, I've never even heard of that one. Deep Water Horizon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it came out uh over the summer, and it was about the dude on the oil rig. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Unless I'm totally wrong, but that. <laughs> if I am, I'll edit it out. Uh, the Godfather trilogy is on there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just a bunch of movies that I never got a chance to watch and feel like I should. I have that, but for books, it's a 80-something long to-doist list Oh wow! of books that I ought to read. Yeah, I feel like I should do that too. Ooh, I should. For next week, I'm going to put something on media because there's a book series that I've been loving. <laughs> Did you ever read American Gods? American Gods? Uh, I can't remember. Maybe. By Neil Gaiman? It is on my list, for sure. I don't remember if I actually had... got around to it. Okay. It had Mr. Wednesday? Anyways, there's an American Gods TV show that just came out that is also on my list. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. I bought the audiobook, but never actually listened to it. So, that is on the list. So that's it for this episode. We'll see you back in your podcast feed in two weeks. Don't forget to subscribe and comment and all of those wonderful things. It actually really does help us out if you go on iTunes and comment and leave a five-star rating or I guess whatever rating you feel. But a five-star rating. What's it? Yeah, definitely a five-star rating. I can be found on Twitter at the puns guy, And I am at NotStevenBerry on Twitter. So feel free to reach out. Let us know about milk politics or your placement of posters, and we'll see you in two weeks. You, you no, no, no one, no one will see anyone. It's not a video. We'll smell you in two weeks. Correct. Good, good, good. Bye. Smell you later. <laughs> Goodbye. Good, good,